Good morning, family. My name is Brian Hoover. I'll be reading the scripture passage today, which is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You can follow along on the screen or in the Pew Bibles. You'll find that on page 518. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of God. After being in a dark cave for nine months, you're born. You scream. You cry. Strangers shine a light in your eyes. Perhaps they turn you upside down and you get spanked. You are given shots. You scream some more. And then eventually, after many years of suffering and strife, you die. Meaningless, says the preacher. Twelve years ago, while I was at another church, we printed those words on a poster advertising our Sunday school class through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And I wrote those words on that poster to be intentionally provocative because so is Ecclesiastes. Since that class a dozen years ago, I thought it would be nice I'm sure that's the right word, but I thought it would be nice to try again, in part because when I first taught the book, I was a rookie pastor, but also because having been here now nine years, um, next week, that we've never, as far as I know, studied it together. So that's what we're going to do for the next seven weeks through, through Lent, through this season of longing and sacrifice and this journey through the cross, 
to the hope of the resurrection. We're going to be studying Ecclesiastes in here and in the cafe during our adult Sunday school time. And if we're going to do all that, we should pray first. Would you join me in prayer again? Lord, we have words in front of us this morning that are, well, we'll say it this way, we are unacquainted with them. Little read and even less taught. And yet we believe, we trust that you are good. You are good in giving us all of your words. And so I pray this morning that you, through the preaching of your word and and really through the larger message that comes through the whole service as we go through your word, through singing, through communion, through a remembering of what you did on the cross, that you would remind us that you are good and you love your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In the fall, a few of us We're at a conference where a number of other speakers were preaching to us, and one of those speakers gave the strangest, most unhinged sermon I've ever heard. I I, I was sitting there with another pastor from another church, a friend of mine, and he leaned over to me and said, who is this guy mad at? I honestly didn't know if the speaker was well. I, I don't think he was. And... When all seven of us were driving back in the, in the church van, I'm driving, I say, to the back row, uh, to one person in particular, what, what did you think of that? Um, she said, it was striking. <laughs> and we all laughed because we knew striking, while kind, in that context, meant it wasn't necessarily a compliment. <laughs> that sermon was striking. Last week, our passage spoke of Jesus as a visiting rabbi to a synagogue, as a guest preacher, if you will. Jesus was often preaching striking, uncomfortable messages, but not really for the same reason this other speaker was. Here, as we open this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, this book of wisdom, as we call it, we're confronted again with another preacher. Although he's polished, he's articulate, he too begins in a striking manner. Vanity of vanities, verse 2, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's not your typical sermon introduction, is it? Not probably what you'd expect a biblical author to proclaim. Surely you think he can't really mean what he says or seems to mean. Well, he he may not mean exactly what we think he means, at least here. The fullness of what this preacher means across his whole sermon, 12 chapters, will take us seven weeks to explore, but this preacher, I believe, does want to confront you with the vanity of all your efforts. He wants to disabuse us of the American dream. 
That's a fancy way to say that this preacher wants you to stare wide-eyed, sober, into the futility, not only of your strongest efforts, but the futility and vanity of all the efforts of all the men and all the women, of all the generations who ever lived and will ever live. All is vanity, says the preacher, verse 2. Striking, isn't it? You may wonder who he's mad at. In a sense, he's mad at no one. In another sense, he's mad at everyone, including himself. But, but, if you and I will have the courage to listen to his sermon, we'll see that by lowering We'll see that by lowering our expectations about reality, the preacher wants to save our expectations, or better, save us. He he doesn't want us to give up. Instead, he wants us to discover the only place hope and happiness can be found. I've been thinking about the best way to introduce this book to you. What questions should we talk about first? What verses? What passages? Do we give a summary of the whole book? What should we do? I think the best way for us to begin is to begin where the preacher begins. So on this first Sunday through our study of Ecclesiastes, I want you to get to know the kind of sermon he's going to be preaching to us. And and just so you don't get worried about time, I'm going to go verses 1, 2, and 3 and give a lot of time to each one of those three verses and then go really quick. These first three verses require more time. So let's just, if if you have a Bible, just leave it open. It will be helpful to you. Let me read the first verse again. It's more like what we would have, perhaps a title page or a cover to a book than a first verse, so to speak. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here the author tells us he's a preacher. And not just any preacher, but, quote, the son of David. Let's talk about this. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, there's a footnote. There's gonna, I'm going to point out two of them. There's a number of them in this chapter one. But, but I'm going to point out this first one. Um, the footnote says that that word preacher in Hebrew is koheleth, which means a convener or collector. Other resources say that this koheleth was, was a convener uh, of people, a gatherer, uh, an assembly, so to speak. It's where teacher or preacher, worship leader perhaps, um, seemed to be fitting. That gr- the, the, sounds weird, but it's a Hebrew word, but the Greek translation of that Hebrew word is ekklesia. May sound familiar to maybe just a few of you, but but that word ecclesia is a word for an assembly, a gathering. It's the word that's used in the New Testament of church. Gathering, an assembly. And so ecclesia is where we get Ecclesiastes. Let's talk about that line, son of David, king in Jerusalem. King David had many sons. Sometimes the son of language in the Bible can mean grandson or son or grandson, great-grandson, great-great-great-grandson. So in other words, son of can sometimes just mean a descendant of. However, the son of David most often associated with this book is King Solomon. 
He seems, his name's not in the book, but, but, but he seems to be the son who f- best fits the descriptions in the book. As we go through it, a description of someone wise and wealthy. Also someone who had a long season of disobedience to the Lord. Now it's possible, it's possible that Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes himself. It's possible that Ecclesiastes was written by someone later as though he were Solomon, writing the kind of book that Solomon could have written, perhaps should have written near the end of his life. So either Solomon wrote the book or someone wrote it the way Solomon could have written it, which means we're still back at King Solomon. So who was he? Who was Solomon? Recently, a new memoir, Spare, by Prince Henry got a lot of publicity. I think it will continue to do so. It makes sense. Harry, according to Wikipedia, this great source of knowledge, right, (laughs) Um, says, quote, he's a member of the British royal family. He is the younger son of King Charles III and Diana, Princess of Wales. He is fifth in the line of succession to the British throne. In 2018, Harry was made Duke of Sussex prior to his wedding to American actress Meghan Markle. So you can see why a tell-all memoir from a man with such a royal pedigree would be of interest to a lot of people. I'll tell you, however, that Solomon's life was far more interesting and far more dysfunctional. Solomon's father, King David, used his power as king, to rape a woman named Bathsheba. Then David had that husband killed through battle so he could marry Uriah's wife. David and Bathsheba's first child died. Later they were married and they had other children. One of those was Solomon. When Solomon took the throne at the end of David's life, God came to Solomon and said, what one thing do you want? for me to help you rule well. Solomon asked for wisdom. And because he did, the Bible says God also gave him riches and wealth and power. Solomon ruled for 40 years of relative peace. And under his leadership, the kingdom of Israel expanded larger than it ever was before and ever was after. He built an extravagant palace for the Lord and an extravagant, excuse me, extravagant temple for the Lord and an extravagant palace for himself. He had nearly limitless wisdom, servants, and pleasure. The Queen of Sheba, visiting from the south, comes up and visits Solomon at one point and can't believe the extent of his wealth and wisdom. However, Solomon turned away from the Lord. He took many, many wives and had many, many girlfriends that he didn't marry but would come over and spend the night, all of which God expressly forbid for everyone, but expressly forbid for a king, Deuteronomy 17, 17. And big surprise, those wives and their foreign gods pulled his heart away from the Lord. You can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 11. And if you want to read all about Solomon, it's 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11. These chapters there narrate his life. Additionally, Solomon instituted an excessive tax system. When Solomon died, that's how he had all his, much of his money, when Solomon died 
and one of his sons took over. The, 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 the people of Israel begged this new son, Solomon's son Rehoboam, to reduce the system of taxes and this, the, the entire system of servitude. Solomon's son did not do that. Instead, he tried to make taxes more intense, and the nation split in two, North Israel and South Israel. It's not the best legacy, is it? That's a short introduction to this man, Solomon. One final detail to note. In the historical books, like 1 Kings, we don't have a record of Solomon repenting from his many sins. Some like to think, and you could include me among this, that Ecclesiastes was written later in his life as such a book, a book of repentance. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Sort of like king of kings, right? Lord of lords. Vanity of vanities. It's the highest of high. That word vanity is variously translated. Some say vapor or mist. The NIV, I think, overstates it by translating it meaningless. In the Pew Bibles, there's another helpful footnote there, actually a more substantive one, that says, quote, the Hebrew term hevel, that's this word, vanity, translated vanity or vain, refers concretely to a mist, vapor, or mere breath, and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive. It appears five times in this verse and 29 other verses in Ecclesiastes. So it's an important word for the book. The Hebrew word hevel, as the note says, means something light and wispy, something ephemeral like smoke. Hevel is, is your breath on a cold day. When we talked about this in our preaching meeting last week, someone said we need to get fog machines. Not for the worship music, but for the sermon. Right? I'd love to I'd come up here and there's fog. We're not going to do that. But it would be an interesting reminder, wouldn't it? Maybe some stories of vanity will help better explain the meeting. A few years ago, we bought vehicles. We, we sold the ones we had and we bought new vehicles. New to us, at least. They were all both used. But our old minivan that we sold wasn't, shall we say, the cleanest on the inside. Candy, such as Sour Patch Kids, had fallen between cushions and had melted in the summer and refroze in the winter and melted and refroze and melted and refroze so many times that, that, that new period, like things not on the periodic table of elements were forming in our car. <laughs> Substances not known to man. Stuff like this. And my wife, bless her heart, spent... <laughs> Two weeks in the afternoons cleaning out the van because we're going to sell it. Right? It's coming. We're going to sell this thing. And we want to get all the money we can for this minivan. And we're sitting at the table with the car salesman. And uh, so at one point, our negotiation, we say, so the van, we'd like to trade that in. What, what, what do you think? What can we get for that? Now, I'm expecting him to walk outside and kind of, you know, drive it, <laughs> kick the tires, right? Selling cars sort of things that you do. I don't know if you do. These were the things in movies. I expected him to do some of those things. He leans back from the table. He's like, that one? I'll give you $300 to haul it to the salvage yard. <laughs> and, and, then that, and, and, and really, that's what it was worth. So, so he, that's what he says. And I'm thinking, it still runs. 
I drove my family here in that. <laughs> There's car seats in the back that work. And it's super clean. The vanity of vanities. <laughs> All is vanity. Here's another one. The other year, after a long and faithful career with a company, a man in our church, longtime church member here, retired. Everything about the social aspects of his retirement were curtailed, you might say messed up by COVID. And if that was not bad enough, on the day he goes to retire, and leading up to it, they're, they're doing construction in his office building, so it's super noisy, super disruptive right outside his office, just on his last day, he's just trying to finish his work. He's got like, our, this church member has like 30 minutes of work left to finish his career He's going to prepare his work. He's going to hand it to his boss who couldn't care enough to stay that day on his last day of work till the end of the day. And so he's just got 30 minutes of work and somebody, the construction worker knocks on the door of his office and says, here's the deal. We're going to glue down carpet right outside your office and so you can leave now or you can stay for two more hours. <gasps> he stood up and left. <laughs> vanity of vanity. One preacher describes this book saying, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Before we're done with the book, we'll have plenty of more illustrations of vanity. Let's keep going. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We've met the preacher. We've heard about his summary of the word vanity. Now we come to the key phrase, or one of the key phrases in the book. The phrase, under the sun. It's used 29 times. Also, the word, under heaven, is used, I think, three times, and together they mean the same thing. It's a way of describing the harshness of life. It's the way of pointing out the injustice in the world, a way of describing life that, that doesn't have or can't see a view to God. It's, it's under the sun. I'll put it like this. There are many good movies that end with a happy ending. Not, not all good movies have to have a happy ending, but there's many good movies that end with a happy ending. But along the way in those happy movies, there's hard things that often happen. Ecclesiastes and this phrase, under the sun, is the preacher's way of saying that if you hit pause during those movies and described what's happening there in that moment, and you did so apart from knowing how the movie ends, that would be the meaning of the phrase, under the sun. Life under the sun is the way life often is. Life under the sun is often unfair, unforgiving, and unfortunate. Then comes the rest of chapter 1. Let me read the preacher's words and offer just a few comments. Just how much vanity is there? How unjust, unfair, unforgiving is life under the sun? The preacher tells us, verse 4, and following. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. 
A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already, it has been already, it is in the ages before us. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. It's a bleak poem, isn't it? Wind and waves come and go. Sun rises and the sun sets again and again and again and again. The rain falls, fills the streams, and the streams run to the ocean. Wind and the waves, the sun evaporate, goes back into clouds. Overland, rains again. And it never, never, never stops. And that grind, that unrelenting cycle of nature will grind away, the author is saying, the memory of everything that has ever come. All your achievements, all your glory, all your work, all your artistic designs, all your words, all your efforts towards a cause will one day be eroded to such an extent that it will be like you never existed. It will be like America never existed. That's why I titled the sermon The Vanity of Sandcastles at Low Tide. Build a sandcastle as fast and as big and as beautiful as you can, but high tide is coming. And the preacher says, tomorrow the glory of your effort will be gone. But, but, but you say, wait, 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 wait. Surely this is overstated. There is some remembrance, right? Well, yeah. I mean, many of us could say who won the Super Bowl two weeks ago. But who won the Super Bowl seven years ago? Who was the MVP? Who won the Super Bowl 17 years ago? Who was that MVP? What was the name and number of the second string offensive lineman, say, the outside tackle? Or defensive line, yeah. I'm even losing track of my football players standing up here. Where did he go to elementary school? Who made the big field goal or missed the big field goal? We have no idea. And of the eight million people on the planet, or billion people on the planet, many of them don't care about the biggest sporting event in the world, or what some call, even when it happens two weeks ago. And some of you are in this room. Or consider not something. I guess we'll call it positive, like the Super Bowl, but consider a tragedy like the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil rig collapse, which became known as this BP oil spill in the Gulf, the largest spill of oil in the history of ocean drilling. In that collapse, 11 people died. Can you tell me the name of the widow of the eighth worker who died? Can you tell me the middle name of the second son who's now growing up without his father? You can't. The preacher in Ecclesiastes wants to persuade us of the vanity of our visions of grandeur and limitlessness. And Jesus did the same thing with a question. Jesus put it like this. For, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8, 34. Let me read the end of the chapter here. Verses 12 through 18. We'll move towards a close. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. He reintroduces himself. 
says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We might bristle at that line about what is crooked not being able to be made straight. But it can't be made straight, not under the sun. If a drunk driver kills your son, a person may go to jail, you may get a court settlement, I don't know, and that in a very, 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 very small way might make it better, but it doesn't fix the things that can't be fixed under the sun. Ecclesiastes is a book about the things under the sun that can't be healed, can't be mended, can't be made straight. Now, full disclosure. Full disclosure, this will be a challenging book for us because we probably have more of a Proverbs view of the world than an Ecclesiastes. We were talking about this in our preaching meeting with the preaching team and and one of us mentioned that we largely have a book of Proverbs view of the world. The view where hard work is rewarded with positive results and it often is. But is it always? Yes, opioid addicts do tend to become poor and sometimes tragically die. But is it always the case that when people are poor or die young, it's their fault? Or partly their fault? No. Do only bad people get cancer? No. Are the refugees and immigrants here in the city of Harrisburg tending to be poorer than many of the rest of us because they are morally responsible for the war-torn countries they are fleeing from? No. The book of Proverbs speaks to God's general way of sowing and reaping, the general way that God created the world. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, gives us the exceptions, which, as the book points out, are not all that infrequent. So what should we say then? I told a friend, uh, Pastor Matt over at Liberty Church, would be preaching through <laughs> Ecclesiastes as we move towards Easter, and he joked about us having a happy congregation and getting more and more depressed as we move towards the resurrection. Uh, that's not necessarily our goal or my goal, but I do admit that the preacher is offering a strange medicine. As I said at the start, if you and I have the courage to listen, we'll see that by lowering our expectations, by lowering certain expectations at least about reality, the preacher wants to save our expectations or better to save us. He doesn't want us to give up. Instead, he wants us to discover the only place lasting hope and happiness can be found. In fact, this is what the author went on a quest to find. You see that in the language of verse 13, verse 16. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Then verse 16, I said in my heart, 
and he says things. That language, that language there becomes the narrative that runs through the preacher's sermon, that language of quest. I sought, I applied, I looked. He's going to walk as far and as intensely as he can in every direction to try and find out the meaning of life. He's running, we might say, an experiment on himself. And what the preacher learned from this experiment, he wants to preach to us. God wants him to preach it to us. Remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sober book of repentance. But before the preacher can give us the cure, before he can fix us and point us in the right direction, he needs us to appreciate how flawed our world is. And not only our world, but us. The book has good news too. just didn't read it this morning necessarily. There's more to life than life under the sun. Later in the book, the author is going to use the phrases hand of God, gift of God, fear of God. Hand of God, gift of God, fear of God. And when he's doing that, he's describing a world that's better. A world that has a view of God. A view of the world that sees the happy ending. We might call that the above the sun view of the world. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes is largely this black and white movie except for a few scenes where radiant, spectacularly bright colors take over. That's what those phrases are. Hand of God, fear of God, gift of God, the above the sun message that will shine to us from time to time through the book. And let's not forget, let's not forget Ecclesiastes fits within the larger story of the Bible, the story of redemption. Ecclesiastes shows us the vanity of our efforts. But why? Why would the author do that? Does the author want to just rub our noses in it and say, just here, look at that. Just sit in that for a while and then fix yourself. No. Is he cruel? A cynic of cynics? No, not at all. He shows us the vanity of things that don't last to better appreciate the things that do, like God. Jesus Christ comes from above the sun to live under the sun and to die in our place and rise again and ascend above the sun and promise to come again and make this world under the sun the way it was always meant to be. And if we have that view, rather than Merely seeing life under the sun is meaningless. Everything instead becomes infused with meaning. Or to say it the way I've been saying, by lowering certain expectations about reality, the author of Ecclesiastes wants to save our expectations. Or better, save us. To show us the only place happiness and hope can be found. Life lived as a gift from God. Would you join me in prayer and invite the worship team to come back up? Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see. On the one hand, the harsher realities we often refuse to look at, the way we numb ourselves with different pursuits and ambitions. But in the other And the other way of looking at it, Lord, 
break in vibrant color to our lives. Help us to see what you want us to see, that you are good and life matters. Maybe not in all the ways we expect or want or demand it to be, but in the way you give it, the way you offer it. Help us to live life under the sun with a view to what you're doing above the sun. In Jesus' name we pray.